Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Historians call it ephemera, the ticket stubs, posters, cards that often are thrown away or put away in scrapbooks. But there are times when the humble handmade sign becomes more than a personal memory. It becomes documentary evidence of a special moment in time, like this summer's anti-racist movement. That's why Smithsonian archivists started collecting the handmade posters and other materials especially created for the street protests following the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Why is it important to collect this protest art, and what is its historic meaning? Later in the show, women of color make up the smallest percentage of scientists and engineers. How can the STEM industry become accessible for all? So it really, really got me excited about what a potential future in science could potentially look like. And also reinforcing from a young, young age that a career in STEM and to be a neuroscientist or to be another type of scientist was entirely possible for me, even as a black woman trying to enter the field. We're kicking off Massachusetts STEM Week with a look at two local programs engaging girls and young women in science. But first, joining me remotely, Erin Bryant, museum curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Erin. Oh, thank you, Callie. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Stephen Booth, archivist with the U.S. National Archives and member of the Blackivists, a collective of trained Black archivists who prioritize Black cultural heritage preservation. Hi, Stephen. Hi, thanks for having me. And Alessandra Renzi, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Concordia University, who spearheaded the Art of the March initiative at Northeastern University, a digital archive of the 2017 Boston Women's March. Thanks for being here, Alessandra. Thank you for having me. All right, I'm going to jump right in um, and just bring people back certainly to the beginning of the summer when the street protests were very intense. And here's a little bit of sound from one of the marches on Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., back in June. Black Lives Matter. 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 Oh, my God, I got chills. This looks so good. Aaron Bryant, you're the curator of photography, visual culture, and contemporary history at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Why did you all decide that it was important to begin collecting all of that material, those posters, those signs, um, from those protests? Well, Kelly, I think that um, what's clear is that we're witnessing a significant transformation in the life of our country. 
And uh, what's even more important is that this uh, transformation is being driven by everyday people who are taking extraordinary measures to change the future of the country, as well as the course of history. And as a historian and as a history museum, we wanted to document that. So I think some people might think, okay, um, well, maybe you get some historians, maybe you get some, you know, uh, more high-toned, I think, material. But when you start thinking about gathering up stuff from the streets, uh, I think some might be surprised that that, too, is collectible and valuable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we have to recognize that uh, history happens before our, our eyes every day. And what's really important for me as a curator is to collect an object that helps me to connect to those everyday people and everyday voices. And it could be something as monumental as, you know, the Hope Diamond, of course, which is at the Smithsonian and part of our collection, or something as simple as a protest sign that was made by a child. For me, it's really important that we represent not just the object, but the very real human voices and human experiences that the objects represent. Okay. Stephen Booth, um, same question to you. You saw the moment, as many of uh, your group of Blacktivists did, and wanted to get your arms around how to present it, if you will, in the materials of the moment. Uh, talk to me about why, uh, in the same way that Aaron, Aaron spoke about. So as trained professionals who have gone to library school, we recognize the importance of not only the materials, but also the experiences surrounding the materials as they're created. And so what we saw from our standpoint on social media uh, was that there was a lot of documentation happening on the grounds, and we really wanted to provide organizers, activists, um, everyday individuals that were in the streets protesting, just with resources and tips on how to best protect themselves, their privacy, as well as the materials that they were capturing as they were a part of those events on the ground. So you're really working on two fronts, both looking at the materials that are there created by the people in the moment, but also sort of speak back to the people in the moment to say, you know, this is bigger than you and you need to think about, you know, what you've created here and what it means. Absolutely. I think oftentimes when we're documenting something in our everyday lives, we're not thinking about how best to preserve it in order to pass it on to our loved ones or our community members. And so our main focus is really teaching the public on how to best capture and document their experience, but also preserve it. Um, there's a misconception within uh, archives, thinking that an archives is just a collection of ephemeral materials, but the practice of archives also involves preservation. And we're really focused on helping people understand that aspect of preservation for their analog materials, whether that be letters, photographs, as well as the digital content on their phone, email, Word documents, et cetera. Okay. Alessandra Renzi, you and I have talked before at the time that you were spearheading the Art of the March initiative at Northeastern University here in Boston. Um, and that was around the Women's March. And you all saw the value of collecting that material to really uh, speak in the future about what it meant. So in the moment, how did you come to decide, gee, this is something we need to pay attention to and need to collect? Uh, well, I mean, I very much agree with Aaron and Stephen in um, terms of wanting to preserve, um, you know, important material and try to, um, you know, support um, 
history in writing and memory work uh, in ways that are um, you know useful and engaging for uh, people who may have participated in those events or for people who are coming after uh, one of the other reasons why i was interested i am a social movement scholar and i work with social movements to really explore the relationship within between technology and organizing. And so one of the things that I was um, really interested in is also to see what kind of engagements and processes uh, of thinking and relaying and uh, you know, organizing further can come from the creation of an archive. So the process that we used to create our archive was very much participatory. Uh, we had already collected the material. It wasn't so much about um, you know, uh, how to preserve that, uh, but it was much more about um, what kind of stories can we tell once we re-engage with those images? Are those images um, telling us when they speak back to us when uh, we revisit the art uh, these archives you know later on for instance i just went back to the archive recently and you know in light of the more recent protests um i was looking at all the black lives matter um, signs and looking at you know the ones that are more um, visible on the streets um, today and just that reflection to see how uh, people are speaking about events how they express their uh, outrage, their hope um, is, um, I think, can be a very productive space from which to think about um, um, changing the world. So that brings me to a question for all of you. I'll start with you again, Erin Bryant of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. How do you know what to collect? I mean, you gather all this stuff up, I presume you take it to a big room and you look at it and then you say, okay, this one, not that one. How, how do you know? We really do rely on people contacting the museum uh, to propose an object. Uh, and, uh, and so that's one way that we might begin to look at a selection of things, you know, looking at what people are submitting to the museum. Uh, but when we're out in the field, it, it's really something different. You know, you're walking around, uh, whether you're at a protest or you're at a, at a site where protests happen, and you see something that really moves you. Uh, for me, um, the criteria really begins with the idea of how do we represent humanity today and how will that representation of humanity stand the test of time? So you can have a protest sign that says something like no justice, no peace. Um, and, and that's important because it's one of those kinds of protest signs that you would see across uh, different movements throughout history. Uh, but then you might also see something that's very particular that really touches your heart and I think crosses all kinds of humanities. For example, uh, there was one protest sign that I saw um, that was simply stated, I miss my dad. And so when mm -hmm. I think about this present moment in time, you know, we want to represent many different voices and many different experiences. And that sign for me represented a very unique kind of experience in one sense, and that you don't see a lot of signs like that in protests, um, at protest marches often. Um, but at the same time, it represents a very universal kind of experience. So a hundred years from now, no matter who you are, no matter what your race, creed, color, what part of the world you might be living in, if you see the sign, it will really help you to connect to the humanity that sign represents and the humanity of that moment. Mm -hmm. So Stephen Booth, part of Blackivist and an archivist with the U.S. National Archives, 
What are Black archivists bringing to this particular project of looking at the Black Lives Matter material that's especially relevant in making the kind of discerning decisions that, that Aaron just discussed? Traditionally, archives, you know, at colleges and universities, historical societies, museums, and government agencies have often excluded the histories of marginalized people and communities. And we recognize that the skill sets that we have aren't just for our, our respective institutions, that we have a duty to um, contribute those skill sets to the communities that we live in and that we're a part of. And so in addition to the Blackivists, there are also a group of Black archivists and memory workers across the country who are dedicated to doing this work and really engaging with community archives, community organizations to have those conversations about what's the best ways to capture their materials and also preserve them and also provide access to them, whether or not they stay in the ownership of the organization or the community, uh, it's really up to them. And so we're just here truly to provide a service and to be a resource um, and to help them utilize the tools that we use in our day-to-day work. Uh, So I think for us, we understand where the gaps are. We've seen them. (laughs) We've seen the gaps in the historical record. And so our main focus is really to kind of help close those gaps, whether that be in a collecting institution or with a community archive. So, Alexander, you have the benefit of looking back after having completed the the Art of the March uh, initiative. So are there are pieces in there that you you know exactly because you have to be it seems to me that all of you have to be a little bit of a crystal ball, even along with your trained eye of understanding what will last. Are there pieces that you look back on and you think, wow, we got it. We really got it right by having this piece and others that you wish that you'd had now with the benefit of, of looking back? So in a way, the choice for us um, about what to retain was made by the people who made the signs because they were all left in the same space in the Boston Commons. And so we collected everything. Um, And for us, this was a unique chance to have, uh, you know, big data about the protest in a way, right? Uh, We have uh, 5,949 signs and they all come from the same uh, protest. And so uh, it really gives you a sense of the um, diversity of voices that had joined the protest. But uh, what I wish I had more than anything is a sense of who else was at the march? Um, what is beautiful about the, um, you know, having an archive that collects so many voices coming from the same protest is that you get this almost a soundscape uh, of voices, uh, you know, uh, showing uh, like uh, Stephen was uh, mentioning, you know, like the humanity of uh, people who made time uh, often together to write these signs, and so having a sense of what else. Uh, was there that was taken away would have been great to, um, you know, to really uh, have a better idea of um, the distribution of uh, concerns that were taken to that space. Okay. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Aaron Bryant of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, Stephen Booth of the U.S. National Archives and the Blackivists, and Alexandra Renzi of Concordia University. And we're discussing efforts to archive objects from the present racial justice protests. What do you say to people, Aaron, um, who say there's a lot that you guys who have done traditional kinds of archiving with materials you can feel. And Stephen approached this a little bit, but a lot of this stuff now is digital. 
And how do you represent that in a significant way when we're talking about street protests that so much of that, um, Aaron, was was uh, organized by, fueled by digital online organizing? How do you capture that? And how do you capture what's important? Uh, Well, in terms of our collection, generally we focus on the tangible three-dimensional objects. And uh, that's part of the distinction between a museum and an archive uh, whereas an archive is looking more at collecting um, documents or books and, you know, text. And uh, so for us, generally collecting around digital moments is not something that we do as much as a museum simply because it's more of an archival kind of thing. However, mm-hmm. uh, I would say that within our exhibitions, particularly if we're talking about exhibitions uh, on that would include some of the movements that are happening today, we might include digital representation through media. And that would really be important because that would be, you know, a way of us talking about, for example, in our Changing America uh, gallery, uh, the impact of media on the course of not just American history, but its impact on Black communities and social progress. Um, Stephen, you addressed this a little bit. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, sure. So the landscape in terms of archives is changing and more and more collecting institutions are having to deal with uh, um, with digital records, born digital records, and how to preserve them. The technology is rapidly changing. And so we're constantly creating new tools and software in order to make digital formats sustainable for posterity. It is a challenge. Most collecting institutions are under-resourced and underfunded. And so we're having to get creative about the ways in which we provide access and preserve those materials. And so more collaborative projects between collecting institutions. And one thing I would like to point out um, is that there is this misconception that social media is an archive that because you have this digital content and you upload it to a social media platform that it'll be there forever. And that's not the case. Well, that was my question because it goes away. So much of it goes away. So how are you guys grabbing it? You know, so so much of it goes away. Right. Uh, So there are some tools and resources for grabbing it. But I think the best thing that everyday individuals can do is figuring out ways to capture it themselves. And so in archives, we'd like to say uh, the three, two, one rule. So think of three places, uh, whether that be your computer or an external hard drive or someplace in the cloud that you can save, you know, that photograph, that video, or whatever document you have on your mobile device. Okay. Alexandra, I don't know if you all uh, grappled with this as much, though there was a lot of digital content connected to the, the Women's March. What, what did you do with that? Uh, well, we actually, um, uh, all the uh, signs that we had collected were in paper. So we had to uh, digitize everything and uh, create the archive from scratch. And then um, what we decided to do was also to create interactive visualizations so that people could uh, play around with the science and also be able to um, zoom in and out of the collection in different creative ways. Um, but for us, that um, you know, that space between the actual, you know, paper and cardboard signs and the uh, digital was also an interesting space to um, intervene in because we um, didn't digitize the science ourselves. We created a participatory project where people who had been at the march volunteered to literally take one sign after the other 
you know, with I'm sure many having back <laughs> problems afterwards and photographing them and tagging them. And then we had students help us um, analyze the content so that it could be searchable online. So we, um, we were thinking about how to move uh, in that space between the, um, you know, the physical artifacts and the digital and um, to um, really um, also track that movement, not just of the sign, but also how, uh, you know, people make signs being inspired by what they see online. And then, you know, they create a, you know, physical artifact and then uh, that physical artifact ends back online. Um, mm -hmm. But one other thing that I wanted to mention, and I'm sure Stephen would have much more to say about it, there is uh, another really wonderful uh, Black-led project documenting the now that is really thinking about this uh, issue of collecting digital uh, media, uh, especially from social media, and they have to grapple with a series of very complicated questions that have to do with not just finding uh, you know, and collecting the content, but also dealing with everything else that is attached to um, digital uh, media, which has to do with, you know, the metadata, uh, the way it's located and how you catalog and archive that, making sure that it's done in an ethical way, that it's not uh, violating privacy of the people who produce the content and so on and so forth. So um, there are people who are, have to spend a lot of time thinking about how to do that. Well, one of the things you didn't have to to deal with, Alexandra, and this connects with what you've just said, and I'm going to throw it back first, Stephen, and then Aaron. You were not trying to make this collection in a pandemic, which imposes all kinds of external forces, which, you know, has, has some impact on how and what you collect, I'm imagining. So, Stephen... How do you, you've mentioned about trying to grapple with this privacy and, and do that, but also now you have to grapple with the pandemic as, as a factor in collecting in this moment. Absolutely. Uh, well, the Blackivists, we are not a collecting institution. And so we try to make that uh, known right up front when we're working with different organizations and whatnot. Um, and to be quite honest, we're not even advocating for uh, collecting materials at this point because of the pandemic. And so we're just really helping organizations and individuals and community leaders think about the best ways of keeping what they have with them, with themselves in, in this moment, and then into having those conversations about donating at a later point when it's, when it's safer, uh, because there are a lot of libraries and archives that are still grappling with how to best provide services during the pandemic. Um, Aaron? Uh, yeah, you know, it's really interesting because um, I do contemporary history. And so right now it's a really busy time for us at the museum. When you think about the March on Washington, the George Floyd protests and the passing of so many uh, African-American politicians, including uh, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, oh, right. uh, as well as Herman yeah. Cain. And then we also have to think about how do we collect around COVID and its impact on African-American communities. And so you talk about collecting during a time of COVID, but well, we actually have to collect around COVID and what does it mean for black communities wow. across the country? Uh, yeah, so it can be um, a lot of balls to juggle at the same time. Um, one way that we do it is by um, 
making connections to people uh, via the phone, email, um, doing Zoom, et cetera. That's really important. Um, and yeah, there are times that we do go out into the field. For example, uh, uh, we went out with a team of folks from the National Museum of American History, as well as the Smithsonian's Anacostia Community Museum uh, to Lafayette Square. And of course, Lafayette Square was sort of ground zero for protest here in uh, Washington, D.C. It's the park um, right in front of the White House. And, uh, and so, you know, you go out and you wear your mask, you wear your gloves and you social distance. But um, what's, what was important about getting out was um, being able to see people there at the site and being able to talk to folks about why it was important for them to be at the site and be a part of this moment. Um, I think that really helps us in the future. Um, you know, in how we tell these stories and how we contextualize this moment within a long, longer arc of history. Um, but um, yeah, you know, we have to do a lot of the stuff from home, uh, do it digitally, and um, mostly it's by doing a lot of research, uh, reading a lot of newspaper articles, listening to a lot of news broadcasts, and then contacting people that you think have really interesting stories to tell and asking them if they would be interested in donating uh, something to the museum so that we can help preserve their story or preserve their work. I'm wondering if people are a little bit more aware now. I know Stephen had referenced uh, trying to get people to pay attention to their personal archives, if you will. Um, and, you know, often people don't understand what could be archival material. So uh, just a personal story. I was a producer on the on the documentary series Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years. And we have so much archival materials in the series. But one that just stands out to me was uh, in the hour about the Little Rock Nine, which were nine students that uh, attempted to integrate Central High School and Little Rock, met with a lot of violence. And so inside the school, the white students were very much opposed, many of them, to their their presence there. They forced one of the students out. And then somebody made up cards that said, one down, eight to go. Now, it would never have occurred to me to save that, but one of the white students from that time saved it. And the power of seeing just this card and understanding that it was, you know, passed around during that time was really powerful in terms of telling the story, which is why I'm just so interested in how all of you work to find these pieces like that that uh, become so important. But again, this was part of his personal collection. So how do you all get across uh, to the rest of us out here just living our lives, but as it happens, living our lives through some historic moments to preserve some items that could really tell the story of this moment? I'll start with you, Aaron. Um, well, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, people reach out to us um, and then even um, thinking again about, you know, you do the research. Um, but Aaron, those are people who already know. I'm talking about what, how do you get the, across the message to people who don't know, <laughs> you know, that they may have. That's what I mean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you convince people? Well, you know, we have a, a number of programs uh, where we actually we go out into the community. Uh, we go into communities across the country, actually, through our community curation um, program, for example. We also have a treasures program. And um, those programs are essentially sort of like the antiques roadshow kinds of 
um, idea, if you think about Antiques Roadshow, uh, mm-hmm. we go into the mm-hmm. communities and we invite people to come out and bring their treasures. And uh, we teach them about preservation, how to conserve, and how to protect um, the materials. And we talk to them about, you know, why is it historically significant? Uh, we also do um, panels and presentations about the things that you might have in your your household that um, really has historic value that can um, be important in telling a story down the road. And again, you know, you could have something as, um, as what you might think is insignificant as a letter or an old jet magazine or something like that, but that can have historical mm. significance. Or it could be something as simple as a shoestring, um, you know, but that shoestring belonged to a World War One soldier, it belonged to your great grandfather or someone, and um, it was a shoestring from his combat boot. Um, you know, mm-hmm. understanding that behind these objects, there, there are real stories that can be told that have significance and that can touch people and change people's lives in a, in a really significant way. And so between our treasures program and community curation, uh, we do a lot um, with getting out to communities across the country to um, help educate people about the importance of preserving the things that they have in their homes. Okay. Um, I would be remiss if I did not tell you that GBH where I am sitting, produces Antiques Roadshow. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, just go. so you know. <laughs> Stephen Booth, how do, you, how do you get across to people that some of these, their personal memories are valuable beyond their personal memories? Yeah, I agree a lot with what Aaron just said about everyone having a story. And most times there are objects uh, and materials connected to that story. And so helping people to see it in that context, I think, gives them helps them to understand uh, the importance of what of their experience and that the value in sharing that with others. Personally, I think it starts right in your own family. And so typically during the holidays or even now during this pandemic period that we're in, I've been talking to a lot of my older relatives and just asking them questions about our family history and um, where did people live in the city? Uh, what were their experiences like when for example, when Dr. King got assassinated. Uh, and so what were their experiences during the Chicago riots at that time? And so just thinking about how to start that conversation within your own family, it, it really helps to contextualize the value of your lived experience and your ancestry and your family history. And being able to help individuals think about it more broadly like that, I think helps them situate themselves in this lived experience of history that we're currently in. Alexandra, um, are there people whose uh, items are a part of the Art of the March um, who have come to be ambassadors now for uh, telling other people to think long-term about their personal memories as perhaps items that can tell a bigger story? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We have not had the opportunity to track exactly what kind of impact the um, sign has had um, on people in terms of them, uh, you know, really um, becoming ambassadors uh, of um, controlling and preserving signs. But we have had many people contact us asking us to collect signs from other protests, which to me indicates that there that there is increased awareness that it's important to preserve this uh, material and we've seen people interact with the archive 
and talk about it on social media. Um, another way in which um, I find um, people become more aware of the value of collecting artifacts and also really um, preserving histories is um, through collaborative media production. I'm not an archivist, but I am a media activist and I work with um, different groups and together we um, train people and we do research with people to produce oral histories and that um, has uh, really um, been a very productive way of seeing the transformation in the awareness of people about uh, the importance of preserving histories and stories that may uh, to them not seem worthy of preservation but that are definitely. You know, I'm very excited about the work that you're all doing. I'm hoping that uh, people who are out there creating, who are in the middle of the history, um, think about preserving some of their work uh, for for future generations. And um, I thank you for joining me. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron Bryant is a museum curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Stephen Booth is an archivist with the U.S. National Archives and a member of the Blackivists, a collective of trained Black archivists who prioritize Black cultural heritage preservation. Alessandra Renzi is an associate professor of communication studies at Concordia University who spearheaded the Art of the March initiative at Northeastern University, a digital archive of the 2017 Boston Women's March. Coming up, Massachusetts' week-long focus on the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM, kicks off tomorrow. This third annual statewide event will highlight the comprehensive efforts to prepare and recruit into STEM industries more underrepresented groups, especially women and people of color. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. See yourself in STEM. That's the theme of the Massachusetts third annual STEM week, which kicks off tomorrow. The theme zeroes in on the need to expand women of color, especially in an industry where just 4% of black and Hispanic women are scientists and engineers in the U.S. That's according to a 2015 report by the National Science Foundation. For 25 years, the Science Club for Girls has aimed to expose and engage young women of color by providing free experiential science programming here in Cambridge. They've had great success, 100% of the girls who mostly come from underrepresented communities, have gone on to college. 
In addition to the Science Club, 26 Boston Public High School seniors have won the inaugural Paula S. Absol Scholarship, which is co-sponsored by GBH. These scholarship winners who plan to study in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics now have support during their college careers. Both efforts hope to empower young women who still represent a tiny percentage of the 600,000 in Massachusetts who currently work in STEM. Joining me remotely, Christina Exelholm, freshman at Northeastern University on the pre-med track and one of the winners of the Paula S. Apsel GBH STEM Boston Public School Scholarship. Hello, Christina. Hi. So glad to have you. Kaylin Brown, co-director of the Science Club for Girls, Harvard Mentor Chapter, and senior at Harvard, majoring in neuroscience. Hi, Kaylin. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And Alejandra Carvajal, Science Club for Girls Governance Chair on the Board of Directors and Chief Legal Officer for Momenta Pharmaceuticals Incorporated in Cambridge. Welcome, Alejandra. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to have all of you. Um, I have been very excited about STEM Week in Massachusetts. This has been a particular interest to Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito, who has really uh, immersed herself in getting this event off the ground and in particular focusing on engaging more girls, young women of color uh, into the STEM industry. So just excited to hear all of your stories. And I'm going to start with you, Kaylin, because you've been a member of the Science Club for Girls since you were quite young. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, well, I started in Science Club for Girls when I first moved to the Boston area when I was around in first grade, um, so around six or five. Um, and yeah, it used to just be something I did on, on Saturdays, but after a couple of years, I started to realize that it really was, um, encouraging me and pushing me to be more confident and more excited about STEM. And also it just gave me the opportunity to learn so much about different potential careers in STEM. So it really, really got me excited about what a potential future in science could potentially look like. And also reinforcing from a young, young age that a career in STEM and to be a neuroscientist or to be another type of scientist was entirely possible for me, even as a black woman trying to enter the field. Now, were you familiar with uh, STEM or even thinking about any of the fields in the industry prior to the science club experience? Um, No, I definitely was not. I think when I was six or five, I wanted to be a candy store owner. And that was like my (laughs) my biggest aspiration in life. Um, But yeah, one Saturday, my mom dropped me and my sister off at Science Club for Girls. And I really got the opportunity to do a lot of hands-on experiments and learn about the world around me in ways I had never even thought about before. And that really was kind of what got me interested in science and started my scientific journey, I would say, that I'm still on even to this day. All right. Um, I'm coming back to you, Alejandra, because uh, you are connected with the Science Club for Girls. But I want to first go to you, Christina Exelholm, because you're a young woman who is now on her way in the STEM field. Uh, you just won the Paula Absol Scholarship, uh, which I should say is co-sponsored by GBH. It was endowed by Paula S. Absol, who is a senior executive producer emerita of the science series Nova. People may know Nova. It's produced by GBH and seen 
seen nationally on PBS. So tell me about your first interest in STEM. My first interest in STEM came from my first internship in my first department. So I used to work at Brigham and Women's Hospital throughout my high school career. And they first put me in anesthesiology. Before that, I wanted to be like a lawyer or some kind of like person in the criminal justice field. So then when I applied for the internship and I got it, I was like, all right, this is something different. Let's see if I like it. I did anesthesiology and they had us in the OR, you know, restocking the carts, doing the IVs in the morning for the patients, running rounds with some doctors, walking around different departments of the hospital, seeing different things. And then I decided that it was something that I found more interesting than being a lawyer. And then from then I started to learn more about science and take AP Bio and other classes that got me to be more interested in science. And you're a freshman at Northeastern now. What are you uh, planning to do with all of your STEM education? Um, after Northeastern, I plan on applying to med school. Okay, very good. Um, Alejandra, I, I want to talk to you about um, how the Science Club for Girls works. But before you speak, I want my listeners to hear a little bit uh, from uh, the kind of work that you all do with the girls. Here's an excerpt from the SCFG, that's Science Club for Girls episode, where they discuss how DNA works. So today, we're going to take a closer look at this really important thing called DNA. Now, to do so, we're going to take a look at a model. And that model is made out of candy, like my second favorite thing to pizza. So I thought we have to make it out of candy. Now, this model is a really blown up model of your DNA because your DNA is about 200,000 times smaller than this. So, Alejandra, that's a part of a series of lessons that you all post on uh, uh, YouTube. Tell me all about uh, Science Club for Girls from your perspective and your role in guiding these young women. Sure. Um, thrilled to be here and happy to talk about the Science Club for Girls. Um, we are an organization focused on making STEM accessible and available through free programming to young girls from underrepresented communities. You know, we're grateful that we've been in existence for 25 years now, and we have really built on the foundation of the original creators of the club who were ahead of their times, really, in terms of their focus on marginalized girls from the community who um, were not really being afforded the uh, educational opportunities to advance their uh, understanding, education, and enthusiasm in STEM. And so uh, today we serve approximately 250 girls, even in a remote environment that we're all living through, um, through clubs and activities like the one that you excerpted by connecting with our community of mentors and young girls through uh, hands-on applied activities that teach very uh, useful, entertaining, and lasting lessons in STEM. Why do you think it's so tough to get uh, young women and young girls and women into the STEM industries? Uh, that's a that's a that's a great question. It's a really big one. Um, you know, the reality of our world and society is that in the world of STEM, we only have. 26% uh, represented in women. 
And then if you break that down into ethnic and racial diversity, uh, you're really looking at only 4% of our STEM professionals in this country being Black or Hispanic. And this is not terribly new for those that are, you know, mindful of and educated in the world of diversity and inclusion. We, we really have what we call a leaky pipeline, where you start with some um, equity in terms of the teaching of STEM to boys and girls in school, and maybe even in the very junior ranks of STEM careers, you've got some general equity in terms of representation, but you lose a lot of those scientists as they advance in their careers. And a lot of it is because of lack of support and, uh, importantly, lack of role models and mentors. And so one of the wonderful things that the Science Club for Curls does is that it not only fosters that enthusiasm and educational opportunity for girls in, their, in these after-school programs, uh, but it does it through mentors, mentors um, like Kaylin, who have just been part of the fabric of the community of um, girls that we have served and then the girls that turn around and become the mentors to the next generation. Um, I think that if more girls see themselves as a scientist in the future, um, uh, through these mentor relationships, we are going to have um, a greater level of representation at the higher levels of um, the STEM hierarchy. So Alejandra just talked about the importance of mentorship, and Kaylin, you are a mentor. Um, how important is that for you to be one at this point? And how important was it for you to see yourself in other mentors as you were growing in your um, knowledge and enthusiasm about STEM? Yeah, I think that I became a mentor for Science Club for Girls just to kind of give back to the organization that really just gave me so much growing up. I think for me, um, I didn't really realize it at the time, but it was essential and critical for me to have these mentors and invested women um, who looked like me and who were interested in the things that I was looking for, interested in. Um, and that was really, really important. Um, not so much as when I was in elementary school, it was, but it gave me an essential foundation for when I got to high school. And I really started to question and really saw that there was this huge gaping, like lack of representation of, you know, women, black women, women of color in STEM. And, you know, when my confidence was wavering, um, when I started to get to the AP classes and, and higher level classes and thinking about college and thinking about careers, what really did help me and keep me grounded was having this amazing community of women to fall back on who were invested. And also, when I was questioning, they always were giving me that encouragement because when you're doubting, oh, is this really for me? You can really think back to the people that you've met at Science Club and say, oh, well, well she's doing this. So I can even just talk mm -hmm. to her about what she's doing. And as I got to college, I really wanted to continue to cultivate that environment because it was so essential for me um, in really directing me and guiding me and also just showing me that I can do it and that it is possible. And I think that's essential for, for young underrepresented women who are trying to, you know, get into this field, which is so homogenous and there is this such a lack of, of women of color in STEM already. Mm -hmm. Christina, now you had the opposite experience. Um, you did not have a role model um, and you recognized uh, early on that, you know, that had some impact. Tell me about it. So growing up, like 
my mom, she did work in the hospital, but she was a nurse. And like in Haiti, a lot of like women come to America and they're like, yeah, I'm going to become a nurse. Like that's the goal. Like that's always the end goal. But like I wanted more. So then I had to go and like research like opportunities. And then I found Brigham, which was where she also worked when she was a nurse. So it was kind of like, oh, wow, like me stepping into where my mom worked, but like still reaching out for more. I found a few people there who like helped me and like we still talk from time to time and they give me advice on like what to do, like what classes to take now and like how to set up my future to reach the goal that I want. So have you thought about the fact that now because of uh, the work that you've done in high school now, even though you're just starting out in your freshman year in this field, you kind of are a role model yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Have you thought about that? No, not yet. But now that you mentioned it. (laughs) It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So that's the that's what we're talking about when we talk about uh, the few numbers, but um, but also um, the the great potential for for uh, young people like yourself. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Christina Exelholm, a freshman at Northeastern, Kaylin Brown, a senior at Harvard, and Alejandra Carvajal, a board member of Science Club for Girls and chief legal officer for Momenta pharmaceuticals. We're talking about how to empower young women to be our next leaders in STEM. Um, I am not in STEM, but I have to say, when I saw this ad from General Electric, it kind of just inspired me. I want to play a little bit for you. This is from General Electric a while back, and it's a female engineer explaining about how being a woman has allowed her a special kind of insight in shaping her career. I believe that diversity of inputs creates robustness in outputs. So I think it's important that we demonstrate through doing that we earn the respect that we deserve in the workplace, whether we are male or we're female. It was a pretty graphically interesting ad, and it caught my attention every time they uh, would play it. And I thought to myself, this would be very exciting and interesting if I were a young woman uh, interested in any of these fields to see this woman uh, doing her job and uh, making it clear that it does make a difference that uh, uh, her her being in the space. Um, back to you, Kaylin. I think people would be interested to know some of the other things that uh, you did as exercises. We heard a little clip from uh, one of the episodes on YouTube. But specifically, uh, what did you learn up until uh, being a mentor yourself? And what particularly stood out for you? Was there a moment in one of the classes or exercises where you felt like, wow, this uh, this is my tribe. These are my people. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So kind of going through the club. We're split up by grade level, and each grade level kind of has their own curriculum that they followed. Kindergarten and first grade was more focused on your senses and things like that. Um, and second and third grade was more focused on my, on the body and learning about our body and what our body does. Um, but I just think the a moment that will really stick with me for a very, very long time was when we dissected a cow's heart. Um, and I just thought that, that was the, the coolest thing ever. And being able to pick up the heart with my hands, with my own hands, was <laughs> one of the most amazing experiences for, for me growing up. But kind of as I was able to move through the club, I was also able to do a bunch of different curriculum that spanned, you know, um, mapping the world around us and also going into coding when I got into the uh, sixth and seventh grade and building my own um, toy. So it was kind of more focused on the engineering aspect of STEM. And I thought that Science Club for Girls did a really good job exposing me to kind of 
the entire um, range of different things that people in STEM do study. So it wasn't just focused on one specific thing. It really did give um, the participants the ability to kind of dip their toes into everything and kind of really figure out what they liked. Well, uh, Kaylin, you are a senior, so you'll be stepping out into the STEM fields shortly. I understand you want to become a physician. Yeah, I do. I'm hoping to apply to medical school after I graduate. Well, I want to give you another role model. I found this woman. I was just looking around on the web, and I thought, this is so exciting. Here is viral immunologist Kizmikia Corbett discussing how working with a Black grad student early in her career helped her better see herself as a Black woman in STEM. I was really kind of in the middle of a laboratory with this world-renowned organic chemist. His name is James Morgan, um, Mm -hmm. and he paired me with a black grad student. Wow. You know, Albert Russell, he's now, I think, the dean or something or the other at Tuskegee University um, in their chemistry department. And beyond the love for science and the scientific process that I learned in that moment, what I learned mostly is that being him was possible. So Kazmikia Corbett, um, she's a PhD. She's 34 years old. She is the scientific lead on vaccine trials at the National Institutes of Health. I'll point out that's where Dr. Anthony Fauci works as well. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, wow. That's incredible. There you go. 34 years old. That's pretty amazing. She's quite cute, too. Um, just, Just really young and fresh and vibrant and just obviously oh so smart. So let me ask you, Christina, as a person who didn't have a role model, but, you know, saw herself in this space and saw herself doing a bigger job than some people might have imagined. What do you think uh, a STEM week is uh, in place for Massachusetts could do? I mean, it's only one week a year, but it really emphasizes STEM and the focus is on uh, young girls and women and other underrepresented communities. Um, Had you had that coming up, uh, might that have helped you? Um, definitely having a STEM week would have helped because when I first started working, I didn't even know what STEM was. It was kind of like over the years in my internships, I was like, oh, okay, like this is what STEM is. And even now, I still kind of don't know much about the technology part because I mostly did the science. So it would have been nice to have that. And tell me about, because uh, Kaylin mentioned this a little bit about uh, being, you know, the only one in some of these high level science classes and some of these um, settings where you got to have these courses in order to get yourself to where you are now as a freshman uh, planning to make a career of this. Was that difficult for you? Yeah, it's really hard. Sometimes I find myself like thinking like, oh, like, am I in the right spot? Like, is this really for me? Because I don't see anyone that looks like me or like who's from a similar background for me. So it's really hard to like stay true to myself. Alejandra, what do you want to say to girls uh, who, not even just the ones in the science club for girls, but but people like Christina and others who uh, may uh, have found themselves on the path, but they didn't have the support of the club, and and we know that they're much needed uh, in the field. Well, I guess I would want to express my uh, fervent desire and encouragement to um, stay in the field of STEM and contribute their minds and voices to the very important conversations and problem-solving efforts around the world. Uh, I mean, I think it, um, 
one of the one of the the many benefits of a club like the Science Club for Girls or the other um, efforts that are you know definitely evolving, and I'm so glad to see that um, uh, coming to fruition uh, in different ways. Is that um, without without all the voices being able to contribute to the discourse, um, we cannot solve the uh, globe's greatest challenges, whether that's in healthcare. Um, uh, lab scientific work, uh, the technology space, um, and we're seeing this uh, in in spades uh, during the pandemic. We need everyone to come together and problem solve. And um, uh, without without the representation from uh, girls and women of all races, we're really only having a, a partial conversation. And I'd like to hear from both of you, young women. What do you want to say to? young women, Christina, um, who are listening to you and may not have ever thought themselves uh, to be, you know, people who would be interested in science, um, but but after hearing you are kind of intrigued. I'd say definitely go out and try it. There's so many that, like parts of science that you can try. Even if you don't like one, there's probably one that you will find that you like. And even if you don't like it, it's a good experience and you learn from it and you go from it. What's your favorite thing about it, just as a as a button to that? My favorite thing about science is how after you learn a few topics, like you can see, you can see it in the world and it makes the world make more sense. And like sometimes you'll take different classes, like a math class or a chem class, and it'll just add up when you take like biology and like it makes sense. All right. Kaylin, same question to you. Yeah, I think that just to echo kind of what Christina said, I think it's really important Um for people who feel themselves maybe interested, but the confidence is kind of lacking, it's really important to be confident and stay true to yourself and know that you really can do it if you put your mind to it and work really hard. Um, and it is not out of reach no matter what. And you belong in the field. Yes, you belong and you will always belong. All right. Well, I thank all of you for joining me. Congratulations for all of your hard work and your current successes. And I know you'll have uh, many more in the future. I'll be looking to find you to be my doctors, by the way, Christina and Kaylin, uh, later on. So <laughs> I want you to do well. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Christina Exelholm is a freshman at Northeastern University on the pre-med track and one of the winners of the Paula S. Absol GBH STEM Boston Public Schools Scholarship. Kaylin Brown is the co-director of the Science Club for Girls, Harvard Mentor Chapter, and senior at Harvard, majoring in neuroscience. And Alejandra Carvajal is the Science Club for Girls Governance Chair on the Board of Directors and Chief Legal Officer for Momenta Pharmaceuticals Incorporated in Cambridge. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.